Thank you so much for joining us for this week's message from Real Life Community, where we talk about connecting with God and others, growing in Christ-likeness, and sharing God's life with the world. My name is Sarah Comer, and I serve each week as Connections Pastor, making sure that you know that there is a God and a community that loves you and wants to go through the seasons of life with you. You can find us at reallifecommunity.org, and we would love to meet you on Facebook or Instagram. Until then, we hope this message meets you right where you are and helps you know just how deep the Father's love is for you. I have looked forward to today for many reasons. One, it's Sunday. It's Resurrection Day. We get to celebrate, right? Amen. That wasn't, that wasn't very good. We get to celebrate, right? Yeah. Um, which is every Sunday. To me, Sundays are the anchor for the week. Because it is on Sunday that we are reminded of who we are, whose we are, and what we are. And so um, I'm glad to be here. But today's special because um, Christy and I, we've invited a friend of ours to just come share the Word of God uh, from his perspective. Uh, and not like it's his interpretation. No, this is the world that he lives in. Uh, Jamie Kassler is part of the faculty team at Trevecca Nazarene University. He is the director of a center, I'm going to let him tell you the details, uh, on campus that is helping Trevecca be on the front lines of actually um, making a difference in the world. And uh, so let's just, I'll I'll let him fill some more details in the life of uh, his life, Um, but let's give a huge real life welcome to Jamie Kassler. It's very good to be with you all this morning. I want to say how much I appreciate the Selvage family. I don't know if you've had the opportunity to meet uh, Pastor Jay's family, but as a college student in Boston, I had the privilege of meeting Pastor Jay's parents when they were on um, furlough from the mission field with my first experience with the Selvage family. And after that, when I went to Nazarene Theological Seminary, I became acquainted with his sister, Jenny Selvage, and I thought that was all the family there was. Until uh, this coming year, uh, Trevecca Nazarene University, where I work on the faculty on the School of Theology and Christian Ministry, I was introduced to Pastor Jay and Pastor Kay as they would come up into the School of Religion area to live life with our college students. And I began to say, you know, your name sounds very familiar to me. I've, I know some other salvages. Do you know the other salvage? Are you related to them? He said, oh, yeah. He said, that's my parents, and that's my family. And I can't think of a better model of a family who loves God and loves others than the salvage family. So thank you, Pastor Jay and Pastor Kay, as you are called, uh, for being faithful to the calling of God to love God and to love others. Well, it is so good to be with you today. Um, today, uh, as you know, is a Sunday after Easter Sunday. Of course, we know Easter Sunday is one of the key Sundays on the Christian calendar, but today after, the Sunday after Easter Sunday, is known as Divine Mercy Sunday. On the Christian calendar, Divine Mercy Sunday is when we reflect on the gift of mercy and love given through Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. It is this resurrection story that we find our hope in the living God. It is fitting that on this Divine Mercy Sunday that we will be talking about stories of biblical social justice, which is deeply rooted in the theology of mercy. A key passage that we often look to in Scripture to define um, mercy would be Micah 6.8. But, oh, what does God call you to do? What does God call us to do? God... What does the Lord require of us? But to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. I think we could also define biblical social justice through the mission statement of Real Life Church of the Nazarene. To live real, to know Jesus, and to find hope. Every Tuesday and Thursday, I get to see Pastor Jay and Pastor Kay come up and live life, authentic relationships, to live real with Trevecca Nazarene students as they gather together in the um, lobby area outside of our offices. And if you haven't had Pastor Kay's banana pudding or chocolate peanut butter eggs, you are missing out, my friend, because it is amazing. And so not only do they feed hungry students, but they also feed hungry faculty uh, who are there. So sometimes us school of religion faculty will linger out into the lobby to live life with college students and Pastor Jay and Pastor Kay and enjoy the wonderful treats that they bring to us. 
But also, if we want to understand what it means to know Jesus, I always look to Luke chapter 4, 18, which is a hallmark uh, passage of scripture that we often look to to define biblical social justice. And we read that this morning. And we see Jesus coming into the temple and saying, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to bring good news to the poor, that the blind may see, the deaf may hear. The oppressed may be released and the prisoner will be set free. May this be the year of the Lord's favor. But I love what happens in Luke chapter 7 because John sends his disciples to go find Jesus who we think, is he the Messiah? Is Jesus the one we've been waiting for? And what does Jesus respond? He responds by saying, go back and tell John what you've seen and what you have heard. The deaf see, the blind hear, the lame walk again. The dead, are raised from the, the dead are raised and have new life. And so we see that the mission of Jesus and to know Jesus is to be involved in the healing of broken lives, to be involved in the healing of broken communities, and to be in, involved in healing in the broken world. Well, this morning I bring you greetings from Trevecca Nazarene University. These are good days for Trevecca, as we are considered one of the fastest growing universities in Middle Tennessee. How many of you here are either a Trebekah grad or you may have a student at Trebekah? I see a raise of hands. Okay, some of you are. All right, well, Trebekah Nazarene University, again, these are really good days for us. In 2015 through 2019, we were considered the fastest growing university in Middle Tennessee. If you were to come on campus today, you would see lots of construction taking place on campus. We have a Jernigan Student Center that's been totally renovated on the inside and outside. You would see our science building on the side that has a new addition that will house our physician's assistance program. And if you go to the back of campus, you would see major construction equipment with cranes and trucks that are building a new dormitory to house three to 400 new students. And that will be completed in 2023, but I'm told by 2025, we already have maxed out our capacity to hold students on Trebekah, on Trebekah's campus. So these are good days for Trebekah. But not only am I grateful for Trevecca Nazarene University, as I've served there since 2009 in the School of Theology and Christian Ministry, but I am grateful for the Nazarene schools located throughout the United States, as there are seven uh, throughout the U.S., and they're equipping the next generation for Christian leadership and service. As a graduate of a sister Nazarene school in Boston, I experienced a Christian culture that shaped and prepared me for a career in social ministry. As a sophomore in college, it was on a mission trip to Romania where we ministered in orphanages and among the elderly that I accepted the call to follow God into a life of biblical social justice. Little did I know that this journey would take me to some of the darkest places where I would journey with people who were experiencing a deep sense of pain, suffering, loss, and hopelessness. Yet in the midst of the pain and suffering, I stand before you today with a deep sense of hope and a belief deeply in the Easter resurrection story as I have seen God do the impossible time and time again. As I have watched him step into the broken lives, broken families, and broken communities to bring healing, reconciliation, and shalom. God would lead me to journey with him to the homeless, to journey with the homeless in the streets of Boston the Kansas City where I would journey with abused and neglected children as they navigated the foster care system. The journey with homeless families and traditional housing program with the Salvation Army. To spend time in a psychiatric hospital caring for the mental health of suicidal and homicidal adults. To walking alongside elementary school children and families who are living on the brink of poverty on a daily basis. Little did I know that following God's call would take me to jail more times than I could count. My mama always said, this kid's going to end up in jail. He's going to be a preacher. Well, my mama was right. I did end up in jail, and I was preaching the word of God to an incarcerated woman in the Davidson County Jail, downtown Nashville. For us in the Davidson County Jail, it would be going on a weekly basis. We would share the gospel story, what it means to live real, to know Jesus and to find hope. And then we would continue to journey with these women as they attended the Celebrate Recovery program at our church and continue to live into the Easter resurrection story. Throughout this journey with broken people, there seemed to be these common questions that I would hear time and time again over a 25-year period in the helping profession. People would ask questions like, 
Where is God in times of pain and suffering? Could God really love someone like me? Can God heal this broken life, this broken family, this broken community? There's no better place to find the answers to these questions than in God's word. It is in God's word that we see where God is at work in times of pain and suffering. So as we look back and take a broader look at the biblical narrative, we begin with Genesis chapter 1 through 3. And in Genesis chapter 1 through 3, we know that as the creation story, the creation narrative where God creates the heavens and the earth. God creates Adam and Eve and the animals and the, the land, and they, they all are living in perfect harmony in what we call the Garden of Eden. And so they're living in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve are living in a right and just relationship with God, with his creation, and with each other. But as we know, uh, and this is called Sedeca, and this is made the first slide on the things. You see the slide on your side? Oh, okay, I don't see that in the back. So Sedeca um, is living in a right relationship uh, between God and man. Sedeca is known as primary justice. This is the way that God intended the world to be. When we look at the Garden of Eden, we see Sedeca, Adam and Eve living a perfect relationship with God, man, and with each other. So Sedeca is known as primary justice because this is the way God intended the world to be. Sedeca means to be just and righteous, to live every day in a right relationship with God, man, community, and creation. And so you can kind of get the sense of the picture of the Garden of Eden with this, this sense of peace and harmony among all that God has created, living in right relationship with one another. It's a place where there's no pain, there's no suffering, there's no brokenness. You know, we may not be familiar with the word sedeka, uh, the Hebrew word, but we are familiar with the Lord's Prayer. And when we pray the Lord's Prayer, what we're asking for is that sedeka may come down from heaven and be here on earth. May there be peace and harmony and shalom among all that God has created. So I thought maybe this might be a good time for us to say the Lord's Prayer together. As we say the prayer together, maybe be thinking and be mindful that we're asking for God's kingdom to come and reign here on earth as it is in heaven. So would you say it with me? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. So, so often when we pray the Lord's Prayer, I think we focus on the second half of the Lord's Prayer. But if we were to look at the first half of the Lord's Prayer, we're asking that the kingdom of God may come on earth as it is in heaven. And when we pray that prayer, we're asking God, may it be Sedeca. May Sedeca come and reign here on earth. <laughs> may there be a place of no pain and no brokenness uh, here on earth. May your divine mercy, grace, and love reign here on earth as it is in heaven. You know, I always find it interesting when we go to funerals and someone has passed away, and it's very common to hear, oh, that they are in a better place, because when they're in heaven, there is no more pain. There is no more suffering. There is no more brokenness there. But could we imagine what it looks like for Seneca to take place and pervade the, um, the, the community that we live in and can come and break in the inner breaking of the kingdom of God here on earth, that there would be no pain and no suffering and brokenness in our communities, among our families and communities and among God's creation. So then we look at chapter 3 um, of Genesis chapter 3. We see the fall of mankind. And so in the fall of mankind, we, we see where Adam and Eve are sinning against God. And at that moment, Sedeca is broken. Adam and Eve are no longer living in a right and just relationship with God and his creation. As a result of the fall of mankind, the rest of the biblical narrative tells the story of God stepping into the broken lives of his people to reconcile all of his creation back to him. The Hebrew word with the meaning to intervene is mishpat. And that's the next slide there. Mishpat means to intervene into areas that are broken for the purposes of shalom. And shalom means to be reconciled, to be restored in a right and just relationship with God, man, and creation. 
And when that restoration healing place, uh, takes place, then Seneca happens once again, that we are in right relationship with God and in right relationship with each other. And so when we look at uh, the word social justice, I know a lot of times when I started the Center for Social Justice at Tribeca, a lot of people would say, can social justice be biblical? I thought that was just politics. I thought that was just government. Um, I thought that was more of the secular side of society. But where do you see social justice in Scripture? And when they ask that question, I go, look here, Mishpat and Sedeca. So the word Sedeca means to be in a social harmony, a peace and harmony with one another. And Mishpat means to step into the broken areas of our world to bring healing, reconciliation, and shalom so that Sedeca may come and reign here on earth and may there be no brokenness and no pain and no suffering. Biblical social justice is when the people of God step into the broken lives, broken families, and broken communities to bring healing, reconciliation, and shalom. The story of Ruth is a story of biblical social justice. Whenever we see Sedeca, Mishpat, and Shalom all wrapped up in four chapters. In the story of Ruth, we see the character of God reflected in the lives of Ruth and Boaz as they provide protection and care for Naomi as she experiences a sense, deep sense of pain, suffering, and hopelessness. Now, understand that the book of Ruth probably isn't on the top 10 reading list uh, for those in the church. So I thought we would have this um, brief video overview of the story of Ruth to kind of refresh us of, of the story of Ruth and how God is at work in the lives of Ruth and Boaz to minister to Naomi. And then I'll come back up here and I'll unpack that scripture. So this time we'll watch the video and the story of Ruth. The book of Ruth. It's a brilliant work of theological art, and it invites us to reflect on the question of how God is involved in the day-to-day -day joys and hardships of our lives. There are three main characters in the book, Naomi the widow, Ruth the Moabite, and Boaz the Israelite farmer. And their story is told in four chapters that are beautifully designed. Let's just dive in and see how this all unfolds. Chapter 1 opens with this line, in the days when the judges ruled. And it reminds us of the very dark and difficult days from the book of Judges. And here we meet an Israelite family in Bethlehem, struggling to survive through a famine. And so in search of food, they move on to the land of Moab, Israel's ancient enemy. And there the father of the family dies, and the sons marry two Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah. And then the sons, they die too. And so they leave only Naomi and these new daughters-in-law. And so Naomi, she has no reason to stay anymore. And so she tells her new daughters-in-law that she's moving back home. And Naomi, she knows that the life of an unmarried foreign widow in Israel is going to be very hard. And so she compels the women to stay behind. Orpah agrees. But Ruth does not. She shows remarkable loyalty to Naomi. And she says, wherever you go, I'm going to go. Your people will become my people, and your God will become my God. And so the two of them return to Israel together. And the chapter concludes with Naomi changing her name to Mara, which means bitter in Hebrew. And she laments her tragic fate. Chapter 2 begins with Naomi and Ruth discussing where they're going to find food. And it just so happens to be the beginning of the barley harvest. And so Ruth goes out to look for food, and it just so happens that she ends up picking grain in the field of a man named Boaz, who just so happens to be Naomi's relative. We're told that Boaz is a man of noble character, and he notices Ruth. And so after finding out more about her story, he shows remarkable generosity to her. He makes these special provisions so that the immigrant Ruth can gather grain in his field. And in doing so, Boaz is actually obeying an explicit command of the Torah to show generosity to the immigrant and the poor. Boaz is so impressed by Ruth's loyalty to Naomi, he prays for her that God will reward her for her boldness. So Ruth comes home that day, and Naomi finds out that she met Boaz, and she is thrilled. She says Boaz is their family redeemer. Now, this family redeemer thing, this was a cultural practice in Israel where if a man in the family died and he left behind a wife or children or land, it was the family redeemer's responsibility to marry that widow, to take up the land, and protect that family. So Naomi, she begins to hope that perhaps there might still be a future for her family. 
Chapter 3 begins with Naomi and Ruth making a plan to get Boaz to notice their situation. So Ruth is going to stop wearing clothes of a grieving widow, and she's going to show signs that she's available to be married. And so Ruth goes to meet Boaz on the farm that night. And as she approaches, Boaz wakes up, and he's totally startled. And Ruth makes her intentions very clear. She asks if Boaz will redeem Naomi's family and marry her. Boaz is once again amazed by Ruth's loyalty to Naomi and her family, and he calls Ruth a woman of noble character. It's the same term used to describe the woman of Proverbs 31. So Boaz tells Ruth to wait until the next day, and he will redeem both Ruth and Naomi legally before the town elders. And so the chapter ends with Ruth returning to Naomi, and they marvel together at all of these recent events. In chapter 4, it all comes together. It turns out, at the last minute, Boaz discovers there is a family member who's closer to Naomi than he is, and he's actually eligible before him to redeem the family. But at the last second, this family member finds out that he's going to have to marry Ruth, the Moabite, and so he declines. But Boaz, remember, he knows Ruth's true character, and so he acquires the family property of Naomi, and he marries Ruth. And so just at the beginning, how Ruth was loyal to Naomi's family, so now Boaz is loyal to Naomi's family as well. The story concludes with a reversal of all of the tragedies from chapter 1. So the death of the husband and the sons is reversed as Ruth is married again and gives birth to a new son, granting joy to Naomi. And this symmetry between the opening and the closing, it's even more remarkable. So remember, the opening tragedy was followed by a great act of loyalty on the part of Ruth. And that is now matched by Boaz's act of loyalty that leads to the family's final restoration. And this symmetry, it highlights the design of the internal chapters as well. So each of the chapters begins with Naomi and Ruth making a plan for their future. And that's followed by a providential meeting between Ruth and Boaz, and each chapter concludes with Naomi and Ruth rejoicing at what's taken place. This story is beautifully designed, and that design actually connects with a really interesting feature of the story, and that's how little God is mentioned. Right, The characters talk about God a few times, but the narrator actually never once mentions God doing anything directly in the story, and that's its brilliance. Because God's providence is at work behind every scene of this story, weaving together the circumstances and choices of all these characters. So Naomi, her tragedy leads her to think that God is punishing her. But actually, the whole story is about God's mission to restore her and her family. And he's doing so through Ruth, through her boldness and loyalty, which brings healing to Naomi's life. But not without Boaz, who's a no-nonsense farmer who's full of generosity and loyalty. And so God uses his integrity combined with Ruth's boldness to save Naomi and her family. And so this story brilliantly explores the interplay of God's purposes and will with human decision and will. God weaves together the faithful obedience of his people to bring about his redemptive purposes in the world. And that leads to the real end of the story. The book of Ruth concludes with a genealogy showing how Boaz and Ruth's son, Oved, was the grandfather of King David, from whom came the lineage of the Messiah. And so all of a sudden, these seemingly mundane, ordinary events in this story are woven into God's grand story of redemption for the whole world. And so the book of Ruth invites us to consider how God might be at work in the very ordinary, mundane details of our lives as well. And that's what the book of Ruth is all about. The story of Ruth is one of many biblical stories throughout the gospel narrative that we could point to as a story of biblical social justice. But what I like about the story of Ruth is that I think it's a story that applies to us, God's people, for today and how God is calling us to reflect his love, grace, and mercy into a broken world. So the story of Ruth, as you heard there in the video, is a story about loyalty between Boaz and Ruth, a loyal to Naomi, it's also a story about um, generosity and compassion as Boaz and Ruth show extreme compassion uh, to Naomi, uh, reflecting the character of God to uh, the brokenness of Naomi and her story. So as we look in the story of Ruth, 
we begin with chapters 1 through 5, and there's a slide for that there. If you have the slide, uh, Ruth 1, 1 through 5, kind of is the opening passage and sets up the, the scripture um, for the story of Ruth. It says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judea, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpha and the other Ruth. After they had lived there for about ten years, both Malone and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two sons and without her husband. Now the first five verses, we learn a lot about this family situation. We find that the family, uh, Naomi and Elimelech and their two sons, uh, are in Bethlehem. Now, the story of Ruth would have been challenging for the people of the day if they heard this because there's so many things about their story that would have moved them to say, this is not how the story's supposed to go. You know, if you can imagine a Cinderella story that ended with the, the evil stepsisters, you know, getting the glass slipper and marrying the prince, you say, that's not how the story's supposed to go. And Cinderella's supposed to get this glass slipper. And so as the people of the day, if they would be hearing the story of Ruth, they would be deeply challenged by what they would be hearing here. And so part of what I want to do today is help us unpack the story of Ruth so that we too may feel that sense of tension that the people of the day would have felt when they heard the story of Ruth. Well, the first thing that we need to know is that Bethlehem was known as the house of bread. And so here we find Naomi and her family in the house of bread where there's a famine in the land. And so we're not really sure if there's a famine in the land because the judges and unjust rule of the judges in that time or if it was just an environmental phenomenon taking place. But we do find that the house of bread, Bethlehem, is experiencing a famine. And so we find a family who is in time of, uh, a time of need and a time of hunger. And so Elimelech and Naomi, uh, they take their two sons and they begin to travel over to Moab. Now you have to understand that the Moabites uh, were considered the enemy of the Israelites. So you didn't want to mingle and reside and live among the Moabite people. That was actually forbidden in the Old Testament, according to prophets of Ezra and Nehemiah. They would say it's forbidden for the Hebrew and Israelite people to intermarry and to mingle with the Moabite people. A lot of tension here, even though they lived only about two or three day journey from each other. So if you can imagine the size of New Jersey, and we have Bethlehem on one side, and we have Moab on the other side. And as Elimelech and Naomi began to journey to Moab, the people of the day would have known that you have to cross by the Dead Sea. And so the Dead Sea is the lowest geographical point in that region. So the author is really highlighting the poverty and desperation of this family as they are not only hungry in time of need, but they have to travel through the lowest geographical point by the Dead Sea into Moab. Now, once they get to Moab, we, we learn of the tragedies that Naomi faces. While in Moab, her husband Elimelech dies. We don't know how he dies, but we know that they're in a hostile environment, so it could be uh, a case of um, malpractice or malplay there, but we don't really know what happened to Elimelech, but we know that he dies. And then we know that um, Naomi's sons um, marry Moabite women. Now, you have to understand, again, this is forbidden by the Old Testament, that the prophets of Ezra would have said it's forbidden for Hebrew men to marry a Moabite woman, but this takes place. And then we find 10 years later that they are, the, um, Ruth and Orpha are barren. And so this is huge in the times of the biblical story in the day because to be barren meant the name, the family name would not be carried on uh, throughout history. And then we see that the two sons die. And so here we have Naomi has not only lost her husband, but she's lost her two sons. And she's left with two Moabite daughter-in-laws. And if life couldn't be worse, um, you know, she has to go back to Bethlehem. And so here she is um, in Moab with these two daughter-in-laws, and she hears that God has provided food in Bethlehem. And so Naomi begins to pack up her things and tells Naomi and Ruth, she said, we will go back home to Bethlehem and we will be provided for there. But as a custom of the day was, um, Ruth and Orpha uh, would journey with Naomi to the city limits. So it's a custom of the day that you would travel with your a family member to the city limits, and at that point you would say your goodbyes, and then the family member would continue on to where they were going, and then they would return home. It's much like Easter Sunday. I'm sure last Sunday when you had family or friends over, as a custom of our time, that when the family were to leave the house, we would walk out the door with them, maybe to the end of the driveway, and we would wave goodbye to them. 
And that's just a custom of our time. And so we see here the story that Ruth and Orpha are journeying with Naomi back to Bethlehem. And they get to the point in the middle of chapter 1 where Ruth, Naomi stops and says, Ruth and, Naomi, Ruth and Orpha, you have done your duty. You have journeyed with me to the city limits. You've been faithful to me. Go back home to Moab. Go back to your people where there's a life for you. And you, may you marry someone and find a, a life full of grace and mercy. And, of course, Orpha says she will go back. And we don't fault Orpha for doing that because she has fulfilled her duty and goes back home. But what we see is Ruth showing extreme kindness and compassion to Naomi. And what she says is, I will stay with you, and your God will be my God, and your people will be my people. Where you go, I will go, and where you die, I will die. May, if it be ever so different, that God shall deal harshly with me. And what we see here is Ruth is showing extreme hesed and compassion. So compassion in the, is something that we often think of in the church as Matthew 25. And compassion is giving a cup of cold water to the thirsty or food to the hungry, clothing the naked. That is compassion. But if we were to look at the Latin writing of compassion, the word actually is um, passio cum, P-A-S-S-I-O cum, C-U-M, which means to suffer with. Now, you're probably familiar with the term um, cum because in graduation, which will happen here in a few weeks in high schools and in colleges, you'll see people graduating cum laude or summa cum laude, or maybe you were one of those people. You graduated with honors. But in the story of Ruth, we talk about compassion. Passio cum means to suffer with those who are in need. And so we see Ruth living out the true understanding of compassion is to suffer with and to journey with uh, those who are broken. In this case, it happens to be Naomi. And so Ruth says, I will journey with you um, back to Bethlehem, and I will stay with you and care for you. Now, I heard, listened to the sermon last week, and Pastor Selvage uh, said something that really resonated with me, something that I also tell my students, that when I'm reading the Scripture passages of God, that we need to sometimes just hang out in the Scripture, and we need to put ourselves in the shoes of Ruth at that moment, because if you understand the story, Ruth is coming from Moab, so she would be a foreigner in Bethlehem. So as Ruth is looking to go with Naomi back to Bethlehem, this is a very hopeless and destitute situation she's walking into. It would be much better for Ruth to turn around and go back home. But yet Ruth says, I trust in God that God will provide for me. And God will provide for you. And so as a woman, um, she is at the lowest social rung of the social ladder there. But also she um, is a foreigner. Uh, and she has no male provider or protector. In a patriarchal world, it's very important to have a male provider and a male protector. And so Ruth and Naomi have no male provider or protector. And so Ruth is journeying with Naomi to Bethlehem where she knows that this is very, a very hopeless situation. But yet, Ruth trusts God to provide for her. And so as Ruth and Naomi journey back home, we see in the next verse slide, uh, one, then, uh, Ruth chapter 1, verses 19 through 20. Uh, we have a slide there for that. We see that as Ruth and Naomi are journeying into Bethlehem, it says, when they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Which means blessed one in Hebrew. Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Now we have to understand here that the whole town is stirred. So I can imagine if I was looking at Naomi's high school yearbook. I know we're kind of in that season of graduation and yearbooks are coming out, and we look back and we probably think, I would think and imagine that Naomi probably was the homecoming queen of her school. I'm guessing that Naomi may, might have been student body president. She probably had a senior superlative of most likely to succeed, most spiritual uh, person in her class. So you see, the whole town is stirred because they knew of Naomi. She was well-known in that community. And so as she comes back into Bethlehem, the whole town is stirred, and they say, can this be Naomi? Can this be our, our homecoming queen, the one that was most likely to succeed? Could this be Naomi? And she says, don't call me Naomi, which means blessed one. Call me Mara because God's hand is dealt bitterly against me. 
I can hear Naomi asking the same questions that I would hear many broken people ask me throughout my 25 years in the helping profession. Where is God in times of pain and suffering? Could God love someone like me? Can God heal this broken life, this broken family? Naomi is in a hopeless situation. She's very hopeless and experienced a lot of pain and suffering. And so she walks back into Bethlehem and they find a place to reside and then they have to begin thinking about what is their plan. So in chapter 2, we move into chapter 2 in the story of Ruth and begin to be, see hope in the story of Ruth. In chapter 2 of Ruth, we are introduced to Boaz. We know from scripture that Boaz is a man of high standing in his community. He is a wealthy landowner with many field servants, a man of noble character, and a man after God's own heart. We see evidence throughout the story of Ruth that Boaz is following the Mosaic laws, which is an outward expression and reflection of God's love for the poor by the way he treats his field workers, manages the land, and his ethical engagement in community affairs. Now, we are most familiar with the Mosaic laws known as the Ten Commandments, Yet there are over 600 commandments in the Mosaic Laws. Aren't you glad we didn't have to learn all 600 <laughs> commandments? I'd probably still be in children's church right now trying to, to graduate from there. Yet there's over 600 commandments that God has given Moses to uh, give to the Israelite people on how they should reflect the character of God by providing protection and care for the vulnerable and marginalized people of their day. One of, the, one of the Mosaic laws would have been known as the gleaning laws. Like this one in Leviticus. When harvesting grain, leave the edges of the field untouched for the poor. And when you drop grain in the field, leave it for the poor to glean. So they too may provide for their families. Treat the foreigner with dignity and respect. And welcome them as you would welcome one of your own family members. The practice of leaving unharvested grain along the edges of the field to the poor to glean from would have been an outward expression to the community that Boaz is a Christian follower. Now, today, another expression of an outward expression of those who are Christ followers and stepping to the broken areas of our world would be the, the Salvation Army. And I used to work for the Salvation Army for five years as a Salvation Army employee, and part of my role at the Center for Social Justice is to take students on mission trips. And so we went on a fall break mission trip to Atlanta, Georgia. We worked alongside of the Salvation Army. We visited homeless shelters, soup kitchens, thrift stores, and um, on one of our tours, uh, the gentleman was an officer in the Salvation Army, and he had the full Salvation Army suit on. I know you've all have seen it, the navy blue suit with the red lapels and the, the S there, and you would automatically know, no matter where you are in the world, if you saw a Salvation Army suit, you would know that they're with the Salvation Army. And if you saw the red shield or the red kettle at Christmas time, you would know that this is with the Salvation Army. And so the officer stopped in the middle of his tour and he said to us, do you know why we wear the Salvation Army uniform? The wearing of the uniform is an outward expression to the world that we are Christ followers. The Salvation Army has accomplished their mission to be a reflection of Christ in a broken world. As the uniform and the red shield are universal symbols of their mission to serve the poor and marginalized people and their community. According to the Mosaic laws, Boaz was demonstrating an outward expression of his faith by allowing the poor to glean from his fields. But it doesn't stop there. And so if we could pause for a minute, if you were to walk along uh, the, the city of Bethlehem, you would see all of these fields that are being harvested because of the barley season. And so you would see the, the fields that had been harvested from edge to edge. And then you see fields that were unharvested on the edges and, and grain that was left over for the poor. And it would be very visible outward expression of who is a Christ follower by how they manage their field. And so this is where we see Boaz as a, as a person who is managing his field as a reflection of his outward expression of being a Christ follower. So as we continue to chapter 2, we see Boaz goes on to show what the people of the day would call radical hospitality towards Ruth. This radical hospitality would be known as the Hebrew word hesed. Hesed is defined as the deep sense of compassion for the other, to be moved from the depths of one's being to act on behalf of the other. So if you were to see a child 
walking up to a hot stove and about to put their hand on the hot stove, Hesed would move you as an apparent to grab that child's hand and to pull it back so they did not burn their hand. Hesed is the moving into and intervening on behalf of one to avoid harm uh, that may come to them. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 7, when the Israelite people were crying out to God to be released from their suffering under Pharaoh's oppression, God responds, I have heard the cries of my people, and I will come down to rescue them. Hesed is to be moved into action in the deepest part of our being. In chapter 2, we see um, Boaz showing Hesed this deep sense of kindness and compassion and mercy to Ruth as he goes above and beyond what is required of him under the Mosaic laws. Boaz demonstrates Mishpat as he offers protection and care to Ruth as she gleans in his fields. Now, Boaz instructs his men not to touch or harm her in any way. The gleaners of the day were very vulnerable people, especially Ruth, who was at the bottom of the social status, being a Moabite foreigner, a woman with no husband, no provider or protector, Boaz instructs his men not to touch or harm or embarrass her in any way. Now we also see this later in the story of Ruth where Naomi says to Ruth, go back and glean in the fields of Boaz so that no harm may come to you. So we begin to understand that being a gleaner in the fields was a very vulnerable kind of person that the harm must have come to or could come to those people who were gleaning in the fields. We also see that Boaz pays Ruth um, well beyond the payment of the day. So if you were a typical gleaner um, or servant worker in the fields, you would earn about two pounds of grain. If you were a gleaner working in the fields, you would earn less than two pounds of grain for a day's work. But we see that Boaz pays Ruth an ephah of grain. An ephah of grain is about 30 pounds of grain and really shows the huge blessing that Boaz is bestowing onto Ruth by saying, I will provide for you and I will protect you by giving her 30 pounds of grain, which is a, considered a huge blessing in that point of the story. Boaz also welcomes Ruth to eat with his servants. This is where it gets a little messy in the story. As far as cultural norms go, it is one thing to let people glean in the fields and that no harm may come to Ruth. But to invite Ruth to eat and drink with his servants in the dining room, that's crossing the line of the cultural norms of the day. Yet Boaz invites Ruth to dine with them giving her a sense of dignity and worth, which I can only imagine is like Ruth going from a food pantry dinner or the homeless uh, soup kitchen to a, a feast such as an Easter dinner or Thanksgiving dinner. These are just some of the few ways that Boaz is showing extreme kindness and compassion, which we call hesed, to Ruth and Naomi. Yet as we come to the end of chapter 2, we find that the harvest season is coming to an end. And Ruth and Naomi have enough grain to last a few weeks, much like a food box of today. If you were to go to a food pantry, you might get enough food to last you a week, maybe two weeks. But it's, the food pantry is not a long-term solution to hunger. It's just to meet a temporary need. And so we find that Ruth and Naomi are in that situation. They come to the end of the harvest season, and they have enough grain for maybe a few weeks, but they don't have a long-term solution. And so maybe several months before the harvest comes again, and so Ruth and Naomi begin to prepare for a long-term solution. As we move into chapters 3 and 4 of Ruth, we begin to see God at work providing a long-term solution for Ruth and Naomi's hopeless situation. As Boaz serves as a kinsman redeemer, he marries Ruth, and they have a son, Obed, and Ruth and Naomi's experience of Easter resurrection story as their lives are changed forever. And if you know the rest of the story, Obed is the son in the line of King David and the line of King Jesus. And so it would have been very unusual for, to hear the story of a genealogy where a Moabite woman would be the hero of the story. That's not how the story is supposed to go. That's not how the story is supposed to end, the people of the day would have said. But God had a different agenda. Throughout my journey, through the, throughout my journey with God, following him into broken places, and watching him restore broken lives and broken families. I find hope in a God who longs to redeem and re reconcile a broken world through stories such as Ruth. And I find hope in the many stories I could share with you, where I have watched God redeem the Maras of today, those experiencing homelessness, drug addiction, incarceration, abandonment, hopelessness, and maybe human trafficking, one story that I would like to leave you with is one that gives me a deep sense of hope 
and one that I can only explain as God mishpotting into, and intervening into the broken lives of three kids that I had the pleasure to work with. I don't know if you have a picture of that up here. Yeah, so these are my three kids uh, surviving, survivors endure with love and care. Uh, the Bass case. So as a social worker in the, with the Salvation Army Children's Shelter in 1999, um, it was a residential facility where kids would, who were um, experiencing abuse and neglect uh, were pulled out of their homes by the state, and they would come live with us uh, for two to three months while the, the state tried to figure out the case, uh, whether the kids would go back home or go to foster care or go to relative care. So I remember this day, I remember this day like it was yesterday. It was 8 o'clock at night, and I was about to end my shift at the Salvation Army, and I got the phone call that we had three more kids in need of shelter. I said, we would love to have them. And so they, a few hours later, these three kids would come in, uh, and they would come in as they typically do. Um, these kids, obviously, at the time were 7, 9, and 12, although they're a little older in this picture here. Uh, when they came into the shelter, they would have a pillowcase with a few meager belongings with them. This was a typical scenario that we would see. Kids would come in with a pillowcase with a few items of clothing, and they would walk in, and I would greet them and say, Welcome to the Salvation Army Children's Shelter. You're in a safe place, and we are here to take care of you. And we began to love on those kids. Well, because we found out that this case was so severe, um, it, was, it was designated as one of the worst child and abuse and neglect cases of Kansas City history as of 1999. And as we began to unpack the brokenness of these kids' lives, we began to hear about stories of starvation, stories of physical abuse, stories of um, hunger, stories of just so stories of abuse and neglect that would just um, boggle your mind to think that it could ever happen to a kid. And so I began to journey with these kids and unpack the brokenness of their life. And about 10 months later, I mean, most kids stay with us two or three months, but because the case was so severe and a lot of publicity around the case, the kids actually journeyed with us for 10 months. And from there, they went on to a Christian foster home. And usually I didn't hear what happened to the kids after they left the children's shelter. They would go on, and sometimes they would come back, but most of the times they wouldn't. And so these three kids would go into a Christian foster home, and, um, and it would be seven years later that I would go out to get the morning paper. It looks just like this one. And I would go out to get the morning paper and my morning coffee and begin to read the Kansas City Star. And I began to read Survivors Endure with Love and Care, the Bass siblings. And I said, oh, wait a minute, I... I know these kids. These are Katrina, Ronald, and Jerry. These are the three kids who came into the shelter back in 1999, but this is seven years later, and the story says survivors endure with love and care. I thought, how can this be? And so I began to read the story of the Kansas City Star, and they would tell about how Katrina, who is the oldest one there, and Ronald, who's the second, and Jerry, were now thriving in life. Now, I have to tell you, I'm a registered therapist, and so what I've learned in school would say that kids who have gone through severe abuse, neglect, and trauma, such as the Bass children have gone through, remember this is the worst case in Kansas City history in the foster care system, that the textbook would say that these three kids would not make it in life, that these would be the kids that I would have seen in the homeless shelter possibly, or kids I would have seen in the psychiatric unit wanting to end their life because their life was so desperate and miserable and hopeless. But these were the kids that would um, fall, not uh, graduate from high school and never go to college, let alone thrive in life. But yet we find and read the story that the three kids, Katrina, Ronald, and Jerry, are thriving in life. How can this be? Well, as I begin to read the story, we see that Katrina, the oldest one here, she is going to college at this time in 2007. She was going on to college, and she was going to start on a community, community college and advance uh, in her schooling we saw that um, Ronald, the second one there, he's a high school senior at the time, and he was in plays at the local high school. And he had the um, dreams of going to uh, the university to study theater and uh, to continue in his acting career. And then uh, the little one here, the one in the bottom there is Jerry. And Jerry is the youngest one. And so you have to understand why this was the most severe child abuse neglect case in Kansas City history. It's because before those three kids came into the shelter, there were five kids. But due to the abuse and neglect that took place, two of the brothers died. And so those were Jerry's brothers. Jerry was one of, one of three. They were triplets. And Jerry survived and the other two didn't. And so when Jerry um, 
came in and I began to work with Jerry in a package story. He you would know as a therapist that, that those are the youngest children of a, of a family have the hardest and most difficult time in their, in their journey on recovery. But as I began to read the um, story in the newspaper, we began to see that Jerry was 16 years old. He was in the band at school. He was um, involved in youth group. He was on the soccer team. He was looking forward to having his first car. He was thinking about having a girlfriend. I mean, life was just abundant life here we see here for little Jerry. And I began to think, how can this be? How could Jerry, this one who would experience the most abuse and neglect in the whole three of the kids and the whole family, how could he be the one thriving in addition to his brothers and sisters? What really got me is when I read in the newspaper that not only was he thriving, but he was going on mission trips with his church. And he said, I'm going to Nicaragua to build houses for less fortunate people than me. How can this be? This doesn't make sense. As a, as a social worker and a therapist, this isn't the way it's supposed to end. According to the textbook, these three kids are supposed to be in a psychiatric unit in the homeless shelters, but yet they're thriving in life. The only way I could explain the way these three kids are thriving in life is because they had experienced the resurrected Christ of Easter Sunday. Amen. That's the only way I could explain it because the text, according to the textbook, this, this shouldn't be the ending for these three kids. And so here they are thriving in life in 2007, and they, all three of them were advancing in schooling and in life and, and just flourishing. And so a few years later, I, um, I Googled the Bass case. I wonder what happened to these three kids. Any other news stories on them? And lo and behold, uh, Ronald, uh, the second one there in the middle of your picture there, Ronald uh, only graduated from the university, but now he was working for the Division of Family Services in Kansas City, Missouri, and he was mentoring foster care kids. Kids who were going through abuse and neglected situations like he did, he was giving them hope for a better tomorrow. The only way I can explain this, y'all, is that the resurrection story of Easter took place in these kids' lives. There was Christian social workers, there were Christian therapists, there were school teachers, there were doctors, there were pastors, there were youth pastors, there were Christian foster parents. The community of, of Christ came alongside these kids and loved on them. And journeyed with them, they showed compassion, they showed hesed, like we've seen a story of Ruth, where Ruth journeyed with Naomi through the challenges and struggles of life. So the body of Christ today is journeyed with these three kids, and today they are all flourishing in life. The reason I, I deeply believe in the work of biblical social justice is because I have seen God redeem the story of broken people, broken families, and broken communities. I've seen the inbreaking of the kingdom of God transform people's lives in such a powerful way that I can only explain the transformation as the work of God. Through the redemptive story of Ruth or the redemptive story of the Bash children, we see the answers to the questions that so many broken people are asking today. Where is God in times of pain and suffering? Could God love someone like me? Can God heal this broken life this broken family, this broken community. Throughout the biblical narrative from Genesis chapter 3, we see the fall of mankind all the way through Revelation 21 where God says, Behold, I am making all things new. We see time and time again that God is at work healing, redeeming, reconciling broken lives, broken families, and broken communities. Thank you for joining us today. We would love for you to join us in person. Our address is 2022 East Main Street in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. If you'd like to make a donation to keep our podcast ministry going, you can do so online at reallifecommunity.org. Thanks again for listening.